Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Hi everyone, Connor here. If you don't know already, we have launched Intelligence Squared Premium. For bonus content, early access listens, and exclusive extras, just head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the episode description. And if you're an Apple Podcast person, hit subscribe for the bonus extras from your podcasts app too. Thanks again for all your support. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Today on the podcast, we're joined by Turkish novelist and Nobel Prize winner Orhan Pamuk. He sat down with Merve Emre, Shapiro Silverberg, distinguished writer in residence at Wesleyan University and literary critic for The New Yorker. Together, they discussed his latest novel, Nights of Plague, as well as other great feats of literature, which have captured the emotions and turmoil of epidemics throughout history. Here's Merve with more. Hello, and welcome to Intelligence Squared with me, Marve Emre. And I'm very excited to introduce our guest, Orhan Pamuk, novelist, screenwriter, academic, and recipient of the 2006 Nobel Prize in Literature. His work has sold over 13 million books in 63 languages, making him Turkey's best-selling writer. He has also convinced me to have a beer at 1 p.m. in the afternoon to make our conversation. Maybe I should say it didn't take me too much to convince you. <laughs> it took him very little to convince me to have a beer at 1 in the afternoon so that our conversation will be as lively as possible. His books include My Name is Red, The Museum of Innocence, and his new book, Nights of Plague, a novel set on a fictional Ottoman island during the outbreak of the bubonic plague in the early 1900s. It's now out in the UK with Faber, and a marvelous review that I read in The Guardian this morning described it as one of the most interesting books the reviewer has read this year, and I would wholeheartedly concur with that assessment. Orhan, merhaba. Hello. Merhaba. Very pleased to be here. And I'm also as enthusiastic and excited as you are and hoping for interesting questions. Good, good, good. I'll try to do I'll try to do my best. So I have read that you started working on a plague novel before the pandemic was yes. declared. And many years first, I had the idea almost 40 years ago mm. and thought about writing a plague novel set in Ottoman medieval times. Um, and at that time, as I expressed it in my silent house, I was thinking that um, a sort of a essentialist distinction between East and West is based on individuality and 
worrying about death before you get old is a sign of individuality, and that happens during a pandemic. Plague was not the subject, actually. Overabundance of death around, the atmosphere being surrounded by death and feeling trapped in it and making my characters speak about themselves in a historical novel. Then I delayed this. I thought I was too young to write. Then I was perhaps partly a bit under the influence of Edward Said Orientalism, and I have read, and this went into making of White Castle, and there are scenes of plague in my earlier book, White Castle, that all the Western travelers, the most important was Busbeck noticed or observed or and had the illusion that these Muslims, Turks, Orientals, whatever you call them, do not take plague or epidemic very seriously. I mean, quarantine very seriously. Mm -hmm. And they would say, now that we are together, I shouldn't say this in Turkish, it's written in our forehead. God had our fate, had written already our fate and, and decided about us. So why do anything? Mm -hmm. For 20 years, I also told an Edward Saidian anti-fatalist book, but maybe that will not hold water. Perhaps now I disagree. I agree with some of the comments of fatalism. Then I begin, the time was passing, I begin to read about the whole subject and came across the dominant epidemic in 19th century was cholera. And in, and in Russia, in, in Poland, there were cholera quarantine uprisings motivated to read more. And in Florence, in Renaissance, there were also bubonic plague um, uprisings against government. So that politicized my way of thinking. Why don't I have a political novel about and And people, governments get increasingly authoritarian as they want to stop the epidemics. Mm -hmm. And this was the time uh, Erdogan was getting increasingly authoritarian. I said to myself, why don't I write a novel about plague implying allegorical novel and discussing generally really not pointing out to Erdogan or anyone uh, um, write an allegorical book about inevitability of repressive government or authoritarianism. You've said so many things there that I want to come back to. First, fatalism versus non-fatalism. And second, the parallel between the spread of a virus and the spread of nationalism. But before we get there, I just want to orient our listeners a little bit. For those who haven't read the novel yet, it's set on a fictional island that is rife with sectarian divisions, religious, national, linguistic. And it's set in 1901, at the time when the Ottoman Empire was called by many the sick man of Europe because it was losing its territories in the Balkans. It had lost Cyprus. It had lost Egypt, et cetera, et cetera. And it was also not modernized and did not have its own industry. Right. So why—you just said that you had thought about setting it in a medieval city, but you decided then to set it in 1901. Why this time? Why this place? A good question. Because then the subject of nationalism, decay of Ottoman Empire, disintegration of Ottoman system, you know, Ottoman history and the Ottoman identity is put on a pedestal by Recep Tayyip Erdogan. My take on it is that, well, yes, I also like Ottomans, but I like their decay. I like to find some melancholy and beauty in their decay. Also, don't forget that all these pashas, doctors, governors I described, my grandmother 
had photos of them in her house. Yes, mine, it, mine too. Yes, yes, yes. yes. So it's, it's, it's not a very far away subject for me. And I wanted to also write about nationalism, comment on newly made nations, national states. So I thought I would have, and I was also very recently aware of third bubonic pandemic where the uh, bacteria was discovered. So I decided to set it in modern, almost modern times. Yeah, 1901 mm -hmm. is modern mm -hmm. and we have bubonic plague. Mm -hmm. And the way that the novel is narrated is, you know, in the preface, we are told by a narrator, by the narrator, that it is both a historical novel and a history written in the form of a novel. And throughout, there are all of these wonderful references to these faux historical documents, diaries, letters, etc. What is the difference for you between the way that history is narrated versus the way that a novel is oh, of narrated? Course. History purpose, uh, the science of history, so to say, let's attribute science, word science to it, science of history purpose to be um, objective and represents the truth that there is no imagination involved. If Even if there is some imagination, our reliable historian is saying, I'm guessing here, I don't have clues or uh, documents to prove that my guess is this and suggests things. While War and Peace, the best of all the historical novels, we have Napoleon and my Tolstoy research, a whole read whole shelves of books about Napoleon and Russian generals, but he has Pierre and Andre, one of them, he wants to kill Napoleon and confronts. We read historical fiction to be able to go into history through the eyes of imaginary persons. We know it's fake. We know Andre does not exist. We know that island of Mingaria does not exist, but we are charmed probably thinking this Pamuk is a hard worker and he probably researched all the details. The details of collapse of Ottoman bureaucracy is perhaps true, but then let's also enjoy his imagination. This is my ideal reader, by the way. Oh, that's wonderful. I mean, and, and the narrator, as we learn very late in the novel, is Mina, the great-granddaughter of Princess Pakize, who eventually uh, has a very important role to play in the governance of Mingaria. It's interesting to me that you have this novel narrated through a matriarchal line uh, with these two highly competent, highly sensitive women surrounded oh, by... Highly educated, highly too, educated. relatively yes. educated. Yes. Okay, now there is a self-imposed political correctness to me. In my earlier novels, mm. my female readers in Turkey rightfully said, Mr. Pomer, we like your novels, but why don't we see some more women? And the art of the novel is based on our capacity to jump into consciousness of others. Mm -hmm. This other may be gender other, class other, geographical other, cultural other, so forth and so on. So I made it my duty, and I may be, I may sound a bit phony here. Um, um, I'm sure Hollebeck, this French writer, would make fun of my pretensions of political correctness, but I accept it. It's a a very ethical position, I'm not exaggerating it, to tell, to see. This is how Henry James uses this expression, according to him. There is a story, and there's a person, narrator, who sees the story. See my stories through the eyes of female narrators, and in fact, I have two of them. The book is sandwiched by Ottoman princess, who is following the plague through her 
Dr. Husband's Eyes, who is a sort of an epidemiologist. And 100 years later, uh, we have her grand-grandchild putting together the whole story or writing an introduction to Princess's letters. Mm. I want to get back to that distance, but I, I want to go back to something that you said before, that this novel was intended in part to be an allegory of nationalism and that the pandemic authoritarianism. was of authoritarianism, mm -hmm. but that the pandemic was a, not exactly the, the surface phenomenon, but the occasion for that allegory. What we call, call triggers nationalism, but early nationalism in the sense mm -hmm. that when a new nation is formed, nationalism has a glory. Mm. I, I liked and respect that kind of nationalism when the colonialism dies. But the nationalism of today is a way of just backing the government. Let's not talk about it. Mm. Mm. But even with that early moment of nationalism, there are moments where you are quite irate and quite funny about how nationalist Thanks. sentiment, mm. yeah, about how nationalist sentiment can spread a little bit like the plague indiscriminately without much thought and how the actors, the historical actors often don't know what they're doing and then justify it after they've already accomplished yes, something. I like those ironies. Yes. But there is a necessity, my characters also, 50% of their minds realize this, mm. that once Abdul Hamid, King Kaiser, is dead, and this person happens to be the shadow of God, you need sacred, secular sacreds. This book is 700 page of chronicling of an imaginary island, is inventing its imaginary secular sacreds, uh, which in the after 100 years you would see on, on banknotes or statues, artworks, and especially in high school textbooks. I did my best to put nationalism in brackets and tell its story, not condemning it, mm -hmm. but playfully, mm -hmm. ironically talking about it. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the book is about horrors. People are dying like flies. A bubonic place kills one in three, while coronavirus only killed one in hundred at its worst times. Mm -hmm. And I used to read parts of my novel to my wife saying, look, darling, this is, I'm writing about horrors, but it's so funny. Do you think I should stop writing it? And she would thank God said, continue, continue. <laughs> no, I think it is. I think it is very, very funny. And that's one of the things that I like the most about it, that balance between the humor and the horror that you managed to strike. But I want to get back to what you said about fatalism, because there's a sense of fatalism here, not just in death, the, the fatalism of, of death or of dying, but also the well, there's a question of how much any individual human being can or cannot contribute to the movement or the arc of history. Okay, now we came to Tolstoy's subject of where he tackled in his epilogue to War and Peace. Tolstoy wrote a whole essay, and everyone said, what a great novel, what a horrible essay, everyone says. <laughs> yes, but the subject do. is our subject, the role of human in making of history. My novel tackles that, and that's why I choose an island, in fact, an imaginary island, because in situations of isolation, drama is intense, and when there is an intense historical drama in a small place, human figure has more power 
in the making of history. I wanted to show that my personages, my characters, their characters matter in a big scale, like United States, maybe the character of the hero is not important. Carly may be important. That history is written by the heroes. That that is perhaps true in about small islands. Mm, there, there are so many formal features of the novel that reminded me a little bit of Camus' The Plague. So the withholding of the name of the narrator until the very end, that gap between the present pandemic that Camus was writing about and when he actually said it. Was that on your mind as you were writing? Probably 40 years ago, Camus' novel triggered me, but I'm cricket. I teach that at the Columbia University as a political novel, but not a novel about epidemics. Mm. That my critique... Uh, for me, the best novel about plague is Daniel Defoe's The Journal of the Plague Year. The second one, which I quoted in uh, as an epigraph, is Alexandro Manzoni's The Betrothed. I always ask my Italian friends, have you read it? It's so, sort of an Italian war and peace. And they always say, only the plague parts. They might, <laughs> it's just 30 pages. But here and there, he did what I tried to do in this novel. He read all the documents. The, the events take place 150 years before he wrote it. It's a real historical novel. And he narrated in 1665 Milano plague in all its realism. While, yes, Camus inspired me 40 years ago with his mm -hmm. plague. But he did, he did not care about details of plague or did not report about the actuality of imposition of quarantine. When I was writing this novel, I always wanted to say the best three plague novels are these. Daniel Delfort, Alessandro Manzoni, Albert Camus. And, and I wanted to add, fantasizing one day my book will be published. You know, all of these writers never experienced plague, but they wrote the best plague novels. Mm. And I would humbly say, I want to be the fourth one. But I couldn't because coronavirus came and I lived in, in uh, I experienced pandemic. And in fact, I immediately realized that I'm so scared that my, my characters are not scared as much as I am while coronavirus kills one in hundred, plague mm. only killed one in mm. three. Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description to get started. And Apple folks, we've got you covered too. Hit subscribe for some bonus extras on your podcast app. Thanks for all your support. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. 
Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv you're a podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com What you said earlier about a plague or an epidemic or a pandemic being an excuse for the additional concentration of authoritarian energy is a concern that was raised early on in COVID by a number of philosophers who were then dismissed for that point of view. But I don't think that's at all an unreasonable claim to make. Yes, of course. I have modestly read something about both books, mm. fiction, literature, and PhDs. So many people made wrote PhDs about plague in Florence, plague here, that. Um, and I can conclude that humanity wants two things simultaneously. They bought you, government, probably you bought it, and conspiratorial terrorists, probably you're in hand in hand with Muslims, Jews, Christians, next, um, next village, next nation. Please stop it. And if you don't stop it, I'm going to get a price. Mm. And the same person, even the same person, next may say, oh, by the way, don't stop my business. Don't just close my shop. Right. These are demands impossible to satisfy by any government mm. and all governments including the Turkish did a sort of a slalom they maneuvered as the numbers went up they closed mm. as the numbers went down and they opened up mm. when in 2020 March I was in New York and Trump was saying showing us Bible and the churches churches will be open and it will pass in April he said one day I flew I'm now back in my desk in Jihangir Istanbul next to me is Jihangir mosque on it there was a paper written by Erdogan, mm. the Islamists who say all the mosques are closed because of coronavirus. I go, I went down and read it. It's one sentence, one paper, and no one criticized. You may say because of lack of free speech, or that you may also argue that secularism went into the um, blood of the nation. Even the most Islamist behaves like an ultra-secularist, and he opened up afterwards, realizing that he's losing votes. Yeah, it's it's an interesting question, isn't it? To what degree or how much can our beliefs survive a crisis like a plague or a Probably pandemic? that is yeah. best illustrated. That's why I wanted to write 40 years ago plague novel right. that the most um, standard 
important a description of plague situation is what do we romanticize and put on a pedestal? A mother. And what is a mother? A person who sacrifices her life for the children. But in plague situations, a mother stop being mother and try to save their, with the shock of the children and the family, try to save their own lives. While in 1665, if there is someone at home with plague, British government was nailing them to their homes, right. to their doors. Right. I think you do that quite brilliantly. I think as the novel progresses and as Mingaria descends into what you describe as plague anarchy, mm -hmm. you see that, the complete undoing of all pre-existing political and social and economic economic relations. I want to shift gears a little bit. So there's also a kind of subplot to the novel of a detective story, a series of murders that need to be solved. And there's a constant reference in a quite comical way, I think, to Sherlock Holmes and his procedures. That is first based on, there are so many books about it, yeah. a real fact that Sultan Abdul Hamid, the ruler of Turkey for almost more than 30 years, perhaps quite like Queen Victoria, because he, he covered so many years and also modernized Turkey in many ways, not in politically, was addicted to reading first French detective novels, and then he discovered Sherlock Holmes and read and translated. And he had his common translators giving him and reading at night. There are many books about Abdul Hamid and Sherlock Holmes in Turkey. Mm. And it's a common subject, and everyone knows about it. And it perfectly fits with his paranoid character. And also, one of his secretaries used to read it. Then there is a paravan between Abdul Hamid's bed and the reader, and the reader after a while notices that the caliph of all the Muslims is snoring and falling asleep and she stops reading. So he was listening to um, detective stories, treating them as a sort of a lullaby or a fairy tale rather than his horrors. But maybe he enjoyed horrors. Well, I like what you say about the detective story as a kind of fairy tale, because in the detective story, the detective is usually trying to solve the murder of one, maybe two or three people. And there's a tension between that setup and a historical novel in which millions of people or hundreds of thousands of people are dying. Can you talk a little bit about how those two there work There is together? also what I want to suggest is there is a parallel between the inner workings of the mind of Sherlock Holmes, of course, Conan Doyle, and the inner workings of the minds of an epidemiologist. They both stay at their offices. Sherlock Holmes sends Watson around to get the numbers or facts, and then only reads. Probably Abdul Hamid admired that because he was doing exactly the same. He rarely left Yildiz Palace. He was all, he was a hard worker, a reader, reading reports all the time and making decisions. He probably want to be clever as Sherlock Holmes. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, the epidemiologist, the person who is a doctor but doesn't go to distant neighborhoods and talk to people and interview and try to understand, sits at his desk and looks at the map of the plague-ridden island, city, whatever, and makes basic decisions to discover the future and how to avoid the epidemic getting bigger and bigger. Mm -hmm. So this kind of deduction, induction thinking, I tried to put make this sly comparison between modernity. And the irony is that Abdul Hamid once fantasizes 
to be a Sherlock Holmes, that is, logical person, doesn't use force to get confessions. He wanted his, perhaps, system to be um, Conan Doyle-like. He, in fact, invited Conan Doyle to Istanbul. Mm. It was Doyle's second marriage, and he gave them wife and himself, Conan Doyle, a medal. Invited First, invited them to Yildiz Palace, but Conan Doyle was too curious. They were afraid he was going to set a novel. Uh, Yes. There, right? Uh, yeah. And also, they were also there. He made you know, some Armenian plot or something. Yeah. They were all afraid of him. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, what you just said about the gap that can sometimes open up between political fantasies, like the fantasy of modernization or the fantasy of liberalism, and the actuality of those, you get at very nicely toward the end of the novel. And it's when you're talking about the freedom of expression at the end of the novel, you write the custom of gunning journalists and writers down on the street with the tacit backing of the state was first born with the regime of freedom. You've written very movingly about Salman Rushdie and what has happened to him. Could you talk a little bit about First of that all, tension? Uh, these things happen during freedom because, um, and there's no freedom, you don't need killers, you just send the guy to jail. Right. Are we seeing that in Russia, Putin doesn't need to kill anyone, he's putting them in jail anyway. Political killing is about liberal societies, not repressed societies. They are sending them with hundreds of people and no one is questioning. It's not represented. But what was the other question? I said that you have written very movingly in the last week or two oh. about the attacks against Salman Rushdie and what the threats to the freedom of expression are to novelists who dare to offend. And I wanted to hear you say a little bit about that I in was, relation to this book. I was very sorry to what happened to Salman. I felt an urge to write about it. And I was also a bit slightly angry for, A, to organizers who invi invited him. Well. I am also under bodyguard protection, government protection for the last 15 years. In the end, you get tired of it, even though the bodyguards may be friendly, etc. You say, I'm not in danger anymore. I don't need, when they ask me, you also say, I don't need that. Probably Salman also said that, but you should not believe him because he is sick and tired of it. You have to protect the writer in spite of himself. Another point that I made, I wrote an article in Atlantic, is that they're always talking, oh, this, is, this person is against free speech and literature. That person is most necessarily never ever read novels. Mm. You have to be brave enough to underline the class difference, understand the anger of the killer. But since that always seems like legitimizing horrors, which happened with me, a lot of criticism, because in Snow I wrote about Islamic fundamentalists. But as a novelist, it's my duty to understand. As a civil person, it, I condemn this person. The more you understand, the more bad reader thinks that it is I am legitimizing. Mm -hmm. So there's a between ethical judgment in normal civil life and writing fiction, there is paradox. That is the paradox. My duty is understand even the bad guy, while in novel it looks like a legitimization of the bad guy, mm. while outside of the novel I should, of course, as a normal person, ethically condemn this. Mm -hmm. It's a shame that that's a paradox that people seem increasingly to be less willing 
to, to tolerate and yes. to understand. Yes. But what you said about as a writer being under surveillance and having your behavior restricted, <laughs> even against your will, that actually sounds a lot like quarantine. That sounds a lot like the way you describe fact, the management of the of, epidemic. That kind of parallel is with our Princess Pakize, yes. who spends his life with his father, who is put in a prison, a sort of a prison, but it, believe me, it was a palace, uh, by his uncle, Abdul Hamid, and who, who doesn't see the reality of Istanbul. Then he she's married and thinks that now she's matured and would see the world. Her doctor husband ends up in the beautiful island of Mingaria, mm -hmm. and she is again, this time, prisoner of quarantine. Mm -hmm. So just to, before we switch to audience questions, you know, when at the end, the identity of the narrator is revealed, we realize that this is by no means an objective narrator. There is not the kind of distance we thought that the editor of a scholarly volume of letters might necessarily have. And for me, at least, it sent me back to the beginning to reread, to see the narrator's blind spots, to find the ironies. Is this something that you were thinking of uh, look, at the probably. big reveal? I, I like experimental fiction. Mm. And also, I have a strong muscle to be popular, to be read, right? Entertaining fiction as 19th century novel. And I made it my business to jump around, do a sort of acrobatics with the narrator jumping in time, point of view, I'm, I'm guessing what would happen in the future since I'm the writer, giving hints about this, hints about that, placing red herrings here and there. But most I like is changing narrative points of view mm. and making a whole, composing a whole out of all that. That is the joy of writing a novel, besides researching for historical details. Well, it's not just the joy of writing a novel, but given what you just said about Rushdie's attacker, it sounds like it's your whole ethical project as a as a as a human being. So it's very it's heartening to hear that. I'm going to switch to some audience questions. Uh, so this is from Ikai. Hmm. What advice do you have for young writers in countries where political commentary can be dangerous? or met with hostility. Even any advice you take from a 70-year-old writer is wrong. Don't expect <laughs> any. Don't take any advice, political or not, from old writers is my... <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's that's ref you're humble too, so that's refreshing. Claire asks, what was your favorite book when growing up? Wow, there are so many. I was, you know, some writers are really big and serious books when they were 15 or so. Um, one I remember is the Marxist Hungarian George Lukács read Proust when he was very young, uh, that kind of thing. I really used to read, um, in fact, um, comic books mm -hmm. um, and was in love with Piccolo Sheriff and Italian comic book Western left its mark on me. Then the greatest writer fiction novelist ever is, again, this is a Tolstoyan novel. I think he was made up of unique cloth. He has so different from others. And in fact, I was happy that, you know, my novel opens with the description of Boxer War. Yes. There was an almost peasant-like, anti-Western, anti-Christian, um, anyone who was wearing a hat was killed by the angry, anti-Western anger of the Chinese, very natural uprising, 
all the Western powers, even Abdul Hamid was enforced to take part in that war, mm -hmm. while the only person who said in the world opinion was Tolstoy, he was against boxer war, the Western powers crushing China. I have so much respect, not because of his politics, which is very correct, but his immense tentacles that observed anything and picked up the right detail in such a graceful way. Yeah, I was thinking of Tolstoy reading your novel, too. I was thinking of the scene when Napoleon is looking out at the battlefield and he sees it at the chess board, mm -hmm. or when Natasha is watching the opera and all of a sudden it's defamiliarized in that wonderful way, because I think you do something similar, which is to respect the importance of historical events while also humanizing them or deflating them or making them more of our time rather than of some distant time. Uh, Mark asks, do you think there has been an increase in violence and political backlash against liberals in recent years? I don't think so. I think journalists are exaggerating that there is a populist right-wing movement all over the world, but people ignore, look, um, Macron won the elections in France, and no one, no one exaggerated it, but it should be highlighted, or Ukrainian people are fighting for their liberal values, not only the nation itself, or Trump lost the elections. Is Aren't these also good signs that we liberals or free-thinking people would be washed away by a huge way of right-wing nationalism? Yes, there is a way of right-wing nationalism, but also don't forget that Erdogan votes are going down in Turkey. I hope, maybe I'm a silly, naive person, but Turkey would be freer next year. What about, though, the alt-right movements that seem to be forming not within the government, but around it. So, as a as a Turkish citizen, it was hard for me. Or it was it was interesting for me to watch what happened on January sixth at the U.S. Capitol mm -hmm. uh, and the description of that as a coup when you come from a country where there are militarized mm -hmm. coups. So, what do you think about that? About the use January of January sixth? Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you do you? What it do was you, a horrible event. Of, yeah. It was uh, mob overtaking the government, but it was also uh, my Ramiz in the story. It was even more powerful. Mm -hmm. I have also a mob military coup or a mob coup attempt in the novel. It was also an unsuccessful, obviously, and you should judge whether it was really a coup or some naive people, some uh, mad right-wingers are doing crazy things. I think it's more na naive right-wingers are doing stupid things, and it now is being used against Trump. Mm. I think this connects to what you were just saying. The f our, an anonymous uh, person asks whether you think Turkey will be a more liberal country after Erdogan. So I guess they're asking you to tell the future a little bit, if you don't, if you don't mind. I hope Turkey will be a liberal, but it's not a hard thing to be liberal after Erdogan. <laughs> <laughs> but the problem is Erdogan messed up the economy so much that whatever the next government does, they will not be saving the nation from the poverty, that what upsets me, that yes, it's inevitable that Erdogan goes unless he throws the table and there's all blood around, he will go. 
but then the next government, it will take a lot of time for the nation to recover from economical weakness and poverty. Mm, let me end with two questions of my own. Mm -hmm. You said that you teach Camus the plague at Columbia. What are you t are you teaching now, or yes, what are you this teaching? This is, and in fact, that that stressing the fact that I'm teaching it as a part of a political novel. I have a course, and we teach Conrad's Nostromo, which is also echoes in this novel and imaginary country, so forth and so on. Also, I love teaching Dostoevsky's Possessed, which partly has an influence on, on my snow. Benito Cerano by Melville. I discovered a small short story by Calvino. The Watcher is the title that probably Calvino was invited to be voting day watcher. Mm. And then he wrote about how Catholics, and he's a watcher in an old man's, old people's house. So there's a lot of Catholic pressure for the waters. Since I really care about that story, because whenever you say politics and novel, everyone wants to read war and peace, wars, revolutions. It's a very peaceful story. People are <laughs> voting, but it's very, very political. Oh, that's wonderful. I love Calvino. He's probably one of my favorite writers. And my final question for you, what are you working on well, now? Well, I'm writing a novel that takes place in 1942, in 1943, Adolf Hitler was storming Europe, and Istanbul's minorities, Jews, Armenian, Greeks are worried, and the Turkish government invents a racist law called Varlık Vergisi property or wealth tax, but it's applied only to non-Muslims. And my Nishantashi, about which I wrote four novels, the ownership of Nishantashi buildings has changed during this time mm. where minorities, Greeks, Armenian, and Jews could not pay their taxes and sold their property to newly growing bourgeoisie of Istanbul. Well, I can't wait to read that. Thank you so much for joining me for this fascinating conversation. The book, again, is Knights of Plague, and you can buy a copy from the Books tab on the right-hand side of your screen or from your local bookshop now. I'm Marve Emre, and you've been watching or listening to Intelligence Squared. Thank you Thank so you. much, Marve Emre. I enjoyed much. talking to you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com for even more content made just for our premium listeners, including extended Q&As, event discounts, and our newsletter too. Thanks for being a part of Intelligence Squared.